this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Hello and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Usually on the podcast, we hear about the newest book of a journalist or scholar working in some area of sports. But every so often, we devote a longer episode to a particular subject in sports. And we hear from a variety of guests who tell us about their areas of expertise and give us plenty of suggestions of good books to read. For this special episode, we are looking at sports books for young readers. The summer holidays are approaching, and parents will be looking for activities to occupy their children. In my house, the kids spend their summer days not only playing sports outside, but also reading about sports inside the house, when they're chased inside by the rain or the heat. If that's the case in your house as well, or if you're engaged in the constant struggle to get your kids away from the computer or the Xbox and into a book, then I think you'll appreciate the suggestions you'll hear in this episode. No matter on what side of the ocean you live, you'll learn about good sports books that engage and even educate kids of all ages. But even if you don't have children, I hope that you'll stick around to learn something new about sports writing for young readers and some of the issues that children's book authors around the world have been tackling in their work. You'll also hear from people who write about sport for adults, talking about what they read as kids. The athlete biographies, the magazines, novels, and comic books that shape them as sports fans, sports readers, and sports writers. My first guest is John Coy, an American author who has published a dozen books for young readers, from picture books for children to young adult novels. John's latest book is a picture book that tells the story of how James Naismith invented the game of basketball at the Springfield, Massachusetts YMCA in 1891. The book is titled Hoop Genius, How a Desperate Teacher and a Rowdy Gym Class Invented Basketball, published by Carol Rhoda Picture Books in 2013. And this book features wonderful pictures of Naismith and his rowdy students by well-known illustrator Joe Morse. In my interview with John, I asked him about the process of working with an illustrator on a picture book for young children as well as the work that he's done in researching a novel for teenagers that deals with some of the serious issues in sports. To start, I asked him about his own background as a sports fan and a sports reader. So, John, one of the the many things you have on your website is the autobiography you wrote when you were 10 years old. Yes. 
And in the last paragraph of that, and you have the the image of you have the image of the document, so we see your careful ten year old cursive. You have the <laughs> statement in the last paragraph. I love sports very much, and I also like to read. So I'll ask you to elaborate on that. What sports did you like as a as a ten year old, and what did you like to read? Um, I liked baseball first. That was the first sport I just became. Uh, very passionate about. I had an uncle who would pitch to me, who was just very patient and would pitch and let me hit. And um, my mom was also a very patient pitcher who would let me hit. So I got to hit a lot as a, you know, as a five-year-old. Um, it's interesting that uh, that autobiography you mentioned. I think I got an A minus for content, uh, but I got a B plus for mechanics. So uh, I think that is something that has stayed with me. But baseball was my first sport, and then um, a little bit later, uh, I really fell in love with basketball. Um, my dad had been a big football player. My grandpa had been a big baseball player, and I think part of the reason I chose basketball was uh, to have a sport that was more my own, and uh, I continue to love basketball today. And what were you reading as a, as a young sports fan then? Boy, I, you know, I was reading um, a lot of, you know, the Matt Christopher stuff, um, but I also read a lot of nonfiction. I really liked biographies. I can remember going through the, they had a series where it would be like uh, Meriwether Lewis, Young Explorer. Um, and I loved those books. I, I, I could just read uh, biographies um, endlessly. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, from a boy, I really enjoyed traveling. Uh, that's something that stayed. And um, that combination of talking about sports and books, I can see it in retrospect. I, I never planned to write as many books about sports as I have. But I can see that that was something that I spent doing, uh, you know, thousands of hours as a youth. And when you get that, you know, that advice to write about what you know, sports is certainly something that I know. Well, I want to ask about that, John, because uh, all of the authors I've talked to for this episode describe how they use school visits uh, that they do now as authors as research opportunities to uh, eavesdrop on their uh, on the on the kids who read their books to find you know lines of dialogue to put into their own books. But how much in your writing do you derive from your own experiences as a kid? You know, it's an interesting question. I, I was talking with someone yesterday, and, and she said, I don't remember the name of my first-grade teacher. And I said, oh, you know, I had Mrs. Dockin, and I was telling her about my first-grade teacher, and I thought, I think I, I do remember things from being a kid more strongly than a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I know all my elementary teachers' names and, you know, could tell you things about them. So I think that... Um, it may be easier for me to access some of the uh, emotions and experiences of being a kid, but one of the things that's very, very important as an author is that I'm very clear about what is consistent from when I was a kid and what has changed. So one of the things I do when I'm working on you know, a book with a 16-year-old main character is I talk with 16-year-olds about what you know, what their lives are like and what is different from being 16 now than it was from when their parents were 16. And I think it's really, really important for authors have, to have a strong sense of what is the same and what has changed. You know, a lot of the emotional struggles are similar, you know, uh, wanting, 
you know, wanting to be expect, accepted or, you know, being worried that, um, you know, your friend wants you to do something you don't want. Some of that stuff's very similar. But some of the pressures kids have today are different from pressures I had when I was their age. And it's very important for me that I understand those differences. And something that you write about related to that is uh, with with football. So you grew up playing... Uh I guess we would call sandlot football or backyard football, and and I know that uh, for one of your young adult novels, you dealt with the the pressures on young high school football players today. Yeah, exactly, and you know I am really struck by how you know I not only played backyard football, but then you know when I was in high school, I played varsity football, and you know the important thing was you know did you know how to play? Did you mm-hmm. know where to be? Well, there wasn't a lot of pressure on us to be bigger, stronger, faster. Um, I played high school football. Um, I started on defense as a junior at 145 pounds, and I wasn't even the lightest guy on defense. <laughs> you know, and now you tell kids they you know, they can't believe that. And so that's a good example of what I really wanted to do in that young adult novel called Crackback is I wanted to explore what it was like to play for a coach who a player really loved and then have a coaching change and get a coach that for whatever reason the player doesn't connect with. And I think that's something that a lot of athletes have gone through. But as part of that, um, I, I needed a conflict between Miles and his best friend, Zach. And when I was talking to kids, the conflict came up immediately because kids were talking about this pressure they're under to be bigger in order to play. And, of course, now, you know, with steroids easily available, that is a conflict that a lot of kids face and that they have to make a decision on. John, so your newest book, uh, Hoop Genius, is a, uh, is a picture book with, uh, with wonderful illustrations. And, and your first book, Strong to the Hoop, was also an illustrated book. And I want to ask you about the, the process of working with, with illustrators. Um, in, in your writing, something I've noticed is that you're, you're very careful to describe the action in detail, to describe the movement of bodies, to describe the sounds of a game. Uh, and I, and I want to ask on how thinking of how you you write in that way. How then do you work with with an illustrator? Do you uh, do you put those words down on paper and turn the text over to an illustrator, or does your text develop in collaboration with your illustrator? It's kept very separate, Bruce. So okay. I write text, and then um, if a publisher says yes, the publisher um, picks an illustrator. And the publisher sends the illustrator that text. And uh, most publishers are, are very strict on keeping the writer and illustrator separate. So that while mm. the illustrator is working on illustrations, I won't talk to that illustrator. So, for example, on Hoop Genius, the new basketball book, Joe Morris did just fantastic illustrations. Uh, the publisher showed me. Um, a previous book of Joe's and said, this is the person we're thinking about as the illustrator, and I thought he'd be great. But I didn't get to talk to him till his pictures were all finished. Oh, really? Huh. And then we did do some editing after he had sent pictures in. I worked with my editor, Andrew Carr, and Andrew suggested some places where he thought we could uh, cut text because that information was being conveyed in the pictures and so that that made the text more concise than it already was. So that process of, of trying to put 
trying to put the description into the text so an illustrator will um, have enough to draw, but also leaving the illustrator freedom, that's the balance that uh, we're looking for as picture book authors. So I'll say as an academic that uh, uh, getting a new book and opening the box, I just get a thrill in seeing the, the cover art and the design and and. Uh, you know, even though the whole book is full of words and footnotes and so forth. So I can only imagine that, uh, given the process you've described, that uh, this is a tremendous thrill to open uh, a picture book, an illustrated book, and open it up and not only see the cover art, but all of the illustrations inside. Absolutely. I mean, that opening the box, it's its like uh, Christmas as a kid, you know, and uh, the smell and then the pages and... Um, you know, and that process of working with an illustrator is, you know, is so interesting because even though we are not going back and forth and collaborating, oftentimes the illustrations are better than I could even imagine. And that's certainly the case with Hoop Genius. You know, it's a book set in 1891. And, you know, in my mind, I, I was not I was not sure how an illustrator would convey the time period, but also get the energy of that first basketball game. But Joe Morris did both uh, beautifully, and um, I, I just love I love the illustrations. Yeah, in that I book. agree. I agree. Yeah. So, John, summer is coming, and, and we need some book recommendations. And, uh, and of course, I'll encourage listeners to get your books. But uh, I'll ask you, do you have a, uh, a colleague uh, or colleagues, someone who uh, writes sports books for children, whose work you particularly appreciate? I do. Um, I've got a book that I just picked up at the book launch. It's the third book in Jeff Herbach's Stupid Fast series. And the first book was Stupid Fast. The second is Nothing Special. And the third one, the last one in the trilogy, is I'm with Stupid. And it's about a kid uh, growing up in Wisconsin who kind of discovers that he's pretty good at football. And Jeff's writing is very funny, very interesting. And he also um, is not afraid to deal with some very serious topics. So um, I highly, I I would recommend starting with Stupid Fast. Um, But the second book, Nothing Special, and the third one, I'm With Stupid, are also terrific. So I would highly recommend that series. The author that John mentioned is Jeff Herbach, who has written a trilogy of young adult novels about a teenage boy who goes from self-described dork to superstar jock. The first book in the series is titled Stupid Fast, and it was published in 2011 by Sourcebooks Fire. Some of John Coy's other books include his award-winning picture book, Strong to the Hoop, published in 1999 by Lee and Lowe. And the young adult novel about football that he mentioned is titled Crackback, published in 2005 by Scholastic Press. And you can find out more about John and his other books at johncoy.com. Of course, there are illustrated children's books that have earned places as classic literature. Works like Where the Wild Things Are or The Tale of Peter Rabbit that remain beloved by adults and kids for generations. In Canada, the one children's book that has had the strongest hold in the broader culture 
is a sports book. This book is The Hockey Sweater, written by Rock Carrier and with illustrations by Sheldon Cohen. To get an idea of the significance of this nostalgic story, I spoke with Michael Buma, a scholar of Canadian literature and author of the 2012 book, Refereeing Identity, the Cultural Work of Canadian Hockey Novels. Mike tells us about some of the deeper themes present in the hockey sweater, and he also talks about the larger body of hockey novels for young readers. As he explains, hockey literature for children in the last two to three decades has been more direct than novels for adults in dealing with the complex issues of hockey and Canadian identity. Mike begins the interview by offering some background on hockey fiction for children. So basically, um, the juvenile hockey novels, I divide them into uh, sort of a first wave and then a second wave. And the first wave novels are those that were produced largely throughout the 50s, 60s, and 70s um, by writers like Foster Hewitt and uh, Scott Young and... um, Oh, people like Leslie McFarlane. Um, Scott Young, actually, is probably the most famous, but Leslie Far- McFarlane would be the most well-known. He's uh, actually more famous for writing the Hardy Boys books um, under the pseudonym uh, Franklin W. Dixon, or F.W. Dixon. So, yeah, and Foster Hewitt, by the way, is a very iconic Canadian hockey commentator. He was um, sort of the voice of Hockey Night in Canada for a long time on the CBC and sort of um, a Canadian icon in his own right. So these are people who are producing um, these hockey novels that are really um, – Earnest, I guess, is, a, is a, a charitable way to describe them. They're 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 very much in the kind of Bildungsroman sort of you know adolescent protagonist comes of age by playing hockey tradition, and these are very very heavily influenced by. I mean, you can point um, point back all the way to uh, you know earlier novels like uh, Glengarry School Days is sort of the first Canadian hockey novel written in 1902 by Charles Gordon, and um, it's just a school story novel in the tradition of Frank Merriwell and um, Tom Brown's School Days all the kind of um, muscular Christian sort of um, coming of age through sport literature um, that had sort of been very, very popular in the late 19th century. So these novels, you know, they're about, they're about young Canadian guys who, you know, are hardworking, industrious, you know, they're kind of underdogs who become heroes, you know, through hard work and perseverance. Um, and, you know, by sort of winning these hockey triumphs, they win triumphs in the bigger game of life. That's a direct quote from uh, Glengarry School Days, the, the sort of earliest of these novels. The, uh, the second wave hockey novels, um, these are produced in the 1990s, 2000s or so, and, you know, there's, there's a ton of these. Um, probably the, uh, the most well-known would be Roy McGregor's Screech Owl series. Uh, Gordon Corman's Slapshot series as well, but there's there's a whole lot of these. And the main way I would distinguish these from first wave novels is uh, they're still about you know they're still coming of age novels, they're buildings romans, uh, but they're a lot more progressive in their gender and racial politics. Um, you know, children's novels a lot a lot of them tend to be pedantic by nature, right? There's a lesson to be learned here. Um, in the earlier novels, there's a lesson about you know what it means to be a man and sort of you know breadwinner provider um, sort of. Uh, toughness, stoicism, all these sorts of messages. Um, in, in the later, this is the second wave of hockey novels, the lessons learned are quite often about um, women playing the game, uh, about sort of accepting, you know, a racial other onto the team or being that racial other trying to break into this, you know, white male preserve of Canadian masculinity. And, and so, you know, they're a little bit more in step with the times. 
Um, and I'll just maybe say one more thing uh, by way of contextualizing the, uh, the second wave novels. Um, basically, adult-oriented hockey novels arise at the same time as the sort of children's second wave. And it's really interesting because the adult sort of oriented novels, they are a lot more unapologetically, um, oh, I was going to say retrograde, but that's a harsh word. They, they, they want to harken back to an earlier social moment in a very nostalgic way, um, uh, almost as a way of kind of getting around these, these sort of new, new themes. You know, women are playing the mm-hmm. game, but these, these novels really don't want to admit it. Um, you know, all, all sorts of uh, racial minorities are playing the game. These novels just are not interested in that whatsoever. Um, they really want to depict uh, hockey as a sort of white male preserve. And I want to ask about that. Why, why do you think that is the case that uh, um, authors writing for younger readers have been more willing to confront some of the, uh, the stereotypes and myths surrounding Canadian hockey, whereas those writing for adult readers have not? Well, I think uh, there's, there's a whole lot of uh, answers to that question. I mean, one of them, I think, is just the nature of the form, right? When you're writing a children's novel, uh, I think you're pretty conscious of the uptake and, and the sort of, you know, you want, you want it to be included in the school library. And so, so you're going to be kind of in step with the times. There's more pressure, perhaps, to be in step with the times. Um, you're also thinking of your target audience, right, who are, are going to be sort of adults who will function as gatekeepers for these novels. They'll be, you know, fairly progressive and literate adults who, uh, I mean, for the, for the most part, I'm generalizing here, but who are going to, you know, steer children towards these novels. I, I don't want to say the reverse is true of, of adult-oriented hockey novels, but I think it's very clear that the target uh, audience is sort of the, the white male, um, the hockey-loving white male who's nostalgic for an earlier sort of social moment in which, um, you know, hockey was a major, major, you know, the defining characteristic of Canadian culture. And masculinity was the defining characteristic of hockey. I mean, these things were never fully true. But we've entered a social moment, historical moment, in which these things are just patently untrue, um, or, or at least, you know, very much contested. And that's, that's sort of a hard thing to take for a lot of people, this sort of sense of certainty that that myth supplied uh, sort of evaporates. And then, you know, the novels become a way of sort of looking back to an earlier moment and as sort of a comforting kind of reinforcing way. Um, you know, hey, we live in this sort of moment of historical quicksand. All the identities you thought were solid are kind of, you know, caving in beneath your feet. But at least we can have hockey, and that reassures us that, you know, everything will be okay and that there is some solidity and that, you know, masculinity still matters in a toughness, stoic way. Um, in a nutshell, I think that's, that's it. There's this, you know, it's this nostalgic looking back. It's just trying to reassure us that these identities are still in place. So you had mentioned some of the themes that are addressed in uh, hockey novels for younger readers, such as uh, women playing hockey. And I want to ask because, of course, a, a big issue in the game of hockey uh, today is violence. Is this something that's addressed in these novels? Yeah, these novels are uh, pretty conscious of violence. Um, it's, it's really interesting. That's another distinction you can draw between the first and the second wave of adolescent hockey novels. Um, some of the violence is completely out, just completely over-the-top outlandish in the first-wave novels. Um, I think my favorite one is called uh, Hockey Fever in Gogan Falls, and uh, it's just, you know, it's just one of these novels where uh, the, the protagonist is, is this kid who actually gets knocked out three or four times over the course of a game, but, you know, manages to, you know, through three or four levels of concussion, score the winning goal, and it, it's, it's just bizarre the extent <laughs> that this kid has to go to to prove himself, you know, tough and manly, right? Um, so these are novels that, you know, condone sort of honorable violence, right? Violence within the accepted codes of the game. 
The second wave is more interested in rewriting the code to make it mm-hmm. sane and reasonable. So you got to be tough and you got to finish your checks quite often, but you have to be um, respectful of opponents and um, I guess I want to say you, you have to be mindful of, of sort of you know opponents' well-being. Whereas whereas that, that was never really a thing in the earlier hockey novels. It was you know if if someone got hurt and Scott, the Scott Young novels make this explicit. If someone gets hurt because you finish your check, that's too bad. Mm-hmm. That's the game. Sort of live with it. Mm-hmm. Um, in the second wave, you know we don't want to hurt people anymore. That's not what the game is about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I'm I'm very pleased with that development. <laughs> I mean that's hard to argue against, especially now that we're starting to realize you know the damage that concussions can do and all the rest. So let's shift gears to uh, to books for younger children, and I want to ask about a uh, an iconic work in Canadian literature, and that's the uh, the picture book, the hockey sweater. And uh, so, for listeners who are not familiar with this book, I, I'll ask you first to explain the story of the hockey sweater. Sure. Yeah. So the hockey sweater is probably the most famous piece of uh, Canadian hockey fiction. It's written by Rock Carrier. Um, Quebecois author who um, explores the issue. There's a lot of issues woven into this um, fairly simple children's story. Um, on the surface, fairly simple children's story. Uh, basically, it's about this young kid who's growing up in uh, the 1940s in rural Quebec. And uh, time for a new hockey jersey. His old Montreal Canadiens jersey's worn out. You know, all these kids worship the Rocket, right? Worship uh, Rocket Richard. He's their hero. They all want to be like him. They all want to wear his Canadiens jersey. So his jersey wears out. Time for a new one. His mother writes to Timothy, uh, to uh, Monsieur Eaton, the sort of the Eaton's catalog, um, you know, English-Canadian commerce. And um, they send him the wrong jersey. The Toronto Maple Leafs jersey shows up in the mail. And, you know, horror of horrors, this is the worst possible thing that could happen to this poor young boy. Uh, his mother, you know, says, well, we're not going to send this thing back. Puts the jersey on the kid, sends him out to the game. <laughs> and it costs him in social terms, right? Everyone's wearing Montreal Canadiens jersey, and they won't let this kid on the ice. Finally, uh, in the third period, there's an injury, and he, he leaps over the boards, he gets his chance. And this is an interesting moment in the story. The priest, who is acting as the referee, assesses him a penalty. Too many men on the ice, you know, this is, this is not acceptable that you're here. Um, and so this kid, he knows what's going on. He says, you know, you're discriminating against me. It's because I'm wearing my shirt, my, my Toronto Maple Leaf shirt. And um, the, the priest says to him, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not quote this exactly, I should have it in front of me, but uh, he says something to the effect of, you know, just because you're wearing a Toronto Maple Leaf shirt doesn't mean you're going to make the rules around here. And it's a comment on, you know, French-English relations, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the perception that, you know, it's English Canada that calls the shots, that we are the lesser partner in this union. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, very, very pent-up social anger in that statement. And, of course, you know, the kid is sent out. It's a, it's a very cute ending. The kid is sent off to church to sort of, you know, contemplate his sins and pray for forgiveness. And he instead prays that moths will come and destroy the, the Toronto Maple Leafs jersey. <laughs> so why does this book, and, and you touch on some of, the, some of the issues in the book, why, why does it have such an iconic place not only in hockey literature but in the larger body of Canadian literature? Well, it's one of those things that's just kind of caught on. I mean, it, it's, it's had a, a sort of afterlife as um, it, it began as a sort of short, short, short story. Uh, it was made into an animated film um, and this beautiful picture book. The uh, Sheldon Cohen does the illustrations, and uh, it just looks really nice. And because it, it really spoke to um, that, that kind of conversation, the, the two solitudes of Canadian society, which was, uh, you know, I mean, really from, from the 40s um, down through, 
oh, well into the, the 70s and 80s. Um, this is one of the major conversations in Canadian identity discourse, you know, the tension between French Canada and English Canada, and the possibility that hockey might mediate those tensions, um, you know, as well as the possibility and the very, the very real fact that hockey also divided um, Canadian cultures. Um, and so, and so there's, it, you know, there's also, on top of that sort of, you know, major theme from Canadian identity discourse, there's another one, which is the pastoral sort of, uh, the pastoral myth, I call it. Uh, basically, the idea that there's a longstanding tradition in Canadian hockey literature, um, and this is the nonfiction literature as well as the fiction, uh, that the game is sort of connected elementally to Canada by way of ice and snow, right? This is mm-hmm. kind of um, a game that arises from our, our, our geography. Um, and so it, it's kind of this, this natural and inevitable thing that we do as a response to winter. It's kind of our assertion, you know, that, hey, there's vitality in this cold winter time um, that, that in many ways defines Canada. And, and so sort of Harkening back to nostalgia, the game is always seen as more pure when it's played on outdoor ice, more pure when it's played in, in, in childhood, right, which is um, part of that kind of pastoral purity. Uh, the hockey sweater, I think, does that beautifully, right, with not only the this, this beautiful illustrations, but just it's an outdoor game in the small Canadian village. And, um, you know, one, uh, one critic has made the point that, you know, this could be in Saskatchewan or Manitoba or Nova Scotia or anywhere, right? Um, growing up at a particular historical moment, Everybody had these experiences. Um, you know, at least every white male had these experiences, um, and and that's kind of a, a resonant thing, and it has been. It's been canonized too. Right? If you pull out our five dollar bill, you can see a uh, a beautiful scene mm-hmm, from the hockey mm-hmm. sweater too. So <laughs> it's had some help. Among the books that Mike Buma mentioned are the Screech Owl series by hockey journalist Roy McGregor. This series of books about a youth hockey team called the Screech Owls is now up to 22 volumes, all published by McClelland and Stewart. Gordon Corman's series of four novels for middle-grade readers, Slapshots, is published by Scholastic. And the illustrated version of Rock Carrier's story, The Hockey Sweater, was first published in 1985 by Tundra Books. You might not have children interested in hockey books in your house, or any children at all, for that matter. But if you're listening to this podcast, it's probably the case that your own interest in sports books began when you were young. I began reading about sports when I was a kid. Of course, I read the sports page of the newspaper, and we had a number of sports magazines that came to our house. At one point, in fact, when I was 10 years old, I had subscriptions to the magazines Baseball Digest, Football Digest, and Hockey Digest, all at the same time. For this episode, I thought it would be good to hear from other people whose job today is to write about sports as they tell us what they used to read as young fans. Here's what a few had to say. Hi, I'm Raf Nicholson. Um, I live in southwest London, and I'm currently a doctoral student at Queen Mary University of London. Um, I'm looking at the history of women's cricket in Britain since 1945. Um, I suppose I got into cricket kind of when I was about 10 years old um, and that was mainly due to my dad and that's when I really started reading um, books related to cricket. Um, So I wasn't really interested in um, other sports particularly but um, when I became interested in cricket I suppose what I wanted to to, um, do was uh, read more about it, kind of um, find out about the history Um, and I think with cricket kind of the, the books that are written about it 
I mean, the books that I was reading were the ones that my dad owned. And so they weren't kind of aimed at young people particularly. Um, they were genuinely written for adults. So some of them were quite um, kind of difficult reading, I suppose. But it was about kind of the, the reason why I enjoyed them was because it was about kind of immersing yourself in the history of the game. Um, kind of um, things, well, finding out about um, kind of the famous players in cricket, people like, um, I guess, Viv Richards, Len Hutton, Dennis Compton, Colin Cowdery and Botham, those kind of people and kind of the greats of the game. So I suppose books that I particularly enjoyed were, well, my dad's got this great book um, by Peter Roebuck called Great Innings and that kind of um, lists the, well, it's kind of the author's pick of the best cricket innings that he's seen over time. And some of the ones that I particularly enjoyed in that were, well, there's an account of um, a cricketer called Basil D'Oliveira and he made 158 runs at the at the Oval in 1968. And it was quite an important occasion um, that uh, England were going to tour South Africa the following winter. And, and he was a, a, a Cape Coloured player originally um, from South Africa, but he'd come over to England to play. Um, and I guess the, the author talks about his innings as um, embracing humanity and morality. Um, and so I suppose it's reading that account kind of made me think about the issues surrounding cricket and the fact that it's not just necessarily about kind of what goes on on the pitch. It's also about what's what's happening off the field. So I found that really exciting. And then I guess what would happen would be that after I'd read about something like that, I'd go and talk to my dad about it and um, and I'd find out things. So. Basil D'Oliveira turned out to have been his, his favourite cricketer that he'd ever seen play. Um, so that was quite interesting to talk about. He'd also got this other great book um, that I found um, very funny because um, it's called Fresh Pick of the Cricketer. Um, and I was reading this in the 90s and it was published in kind of the late 1960s. So it seemed very, like, it seemed incredibly out of date to me. Um, but that's kind of got accounts from this. Um, uh, publication that that had been going since the 1920s called the Cricketer Magazine. It's just extracts from that. Um, that was a really really great book because it was kind of about it was it was extracts of uh, cricket writers and it wasn't necessarily about the accounts of the matches. It was also about kind of the way they wrote and the way they kind of evoked particular cricketing occasions. So um, who was there, you know, um, and what the weather was like and, and kind of um, the mood and the atmosphere. And, and I guess uh, it, it shaped my experiences in terms of I'm now um, a cricket writer for um, Crick Info and I'm writing about women's cricket, but it it showed me that uh, great cricket writing isn't just necessarily about um, the players or, or the score. It's, it's also about the, uh, or I guess, um, if you weren't at the match, kind of explaining to people what it was like to be there and what it, or what it felt like. Um, and that's, I suppose, something I try to take into my own writing about cricket. So this is Max Rodriguez. I write for footballintellect.com. We tend to cover soccer um, from a little bit more of a philosophical perspective, not so much news. Um, when I was younger, I I tended to read a lot of Matt Christopher. I'm not sure if you might be familiar with him, but he was an author. I think he's still alive. He's still around. Um, who used to just pump out these books on sports for for probably the five to ten year old range, um, pretty on mass just constantly. I think he's written about seventy books so far, um, and the the there was just a constant perspective with these books. I didn't treat sports so much as uh, just a recording of events, so much as just just a fun way to get kids into reading. So he would write books where a child discovered this magical baseball bat that suddenly imbued him with ridiculous levels of talent or 
uh, a soccer player found a magical set of soccer boots that gave him skills that he never expected. And so when I was younger, I, I, I discovered these at my elementary school library, read one, just constantly kept reading them, kept reading them. And, and luckily, the school library just, just had a whole collection. So I would really burn through them constantly. And originally, I'd read them simply because of the content, just because they were sports related. But later on, began to read them more for just, just how well written they were. Um, and I think that when I was younger, that really helped to generate just a love of literature um, in me personally. So I would say that Matt Christopher was a just a large influence for getting me interested in, in reading and literature overall um, and was a method that kind of paved the way for me to start reading just general literature as a kid and gave me confidence in not only my reading ability, but just that sports wasn't this isolated topic that shouldn't be taken seriously. So for parents out there or I guess kids who might be listening, whether that's realistic or not, I, I would definitely recommend checking out Matt Christopher. He's a he's a fun writer and kids are the, the books are pretty light and easy to digest. My name is David Steele, and I am a writer for the Sporting News. And I grew up in the uh, Washington D.C. area, and I and I and I still live there. Uh, and I spent some of my uh, time growing up in the uh, in the New York area in, in Mount Vernon, where uh, most of my mother's side of my family uh, was living. And the first thing I actually remember reading uh, was, believe it or not, the encyclopedia. Um, my uh, my mother had a house full of books. Um, she uh, she worked in library uh, when she was uh, when she was raising us, and uh, we had two sets of encyclopedias. We had the uh, Britannica and we had the World Book. And it's sort of a joke in my family that I was the one who was like literally reading both encyclopedias uh, chapter to chapter, starting with A and going all the way to uh, to Z. And I also read every newspaper that uh, that came into the house as well. So. I was reading the uh, not not the New York Times or anything like that, but uh, I was I was reading the Daily News and it was in the house, and I was reading the local uh, the local Mount Vernon paper as well. And I literally can remember this from as far back as I uh, as I go. Uh, and the, uh, the I, I read every sports book that I could ever get my hand on, get my hands on, whether it was uh, a fictional or or nonfiction or, or or a biography of some kind. And the one that probably stuck with me the most, and it was odd because I didn't realize until uh, I got a lot older that it was uh, written just a few years before his uh, his death, was I'd Never Had It Made, which was uh, Jackie Robinson's autobiography. And there was a, uh, and I, at the time I was probably only about six or seven years old, and uh, he, I don't think he'd been gone for very, for very long at that point. But uh, I was a huge baseball fan growing up, and uh he was a name that I heard constantly uh, around the house, and uh, his life story came into my hands, and I, uh, I read it from cover to cover, and I've never forgotten. I could probably still quote, uh, quote passages from it. And, uh, and as I grew up, I started reading Sports Illustrated when it was around, uh, got a subscription to that, uh, Sporting News uh, when I could get my hands on it, and that was actually the first subscription I bought when I got, uh, when I got out of college and sort of considered myself an adult. And when it was around, probably my favorite magazine of all time was Inside Sports. And probably to this day, uh, I regret that that magazine isn't still around because to me it's, it's still the, my favorite sports magazine of all time. Of course, for every story of a kid like David Steele, who grew up reading the encyclopedia for fun, there are many more stories of children who don't like to read. 
This is particularly the case with boys. As my next guest explains, the differences between boys and girls in literacy are dramatic, and they are evident around the world. Jeff Wilhelm is professor of education at Boise State University. He is the author of dozens of scholarly articles and 15 books on teaching literacy. Jeff has expertise as a classroom teacher as well as a researcher of children's literacy. In our interview, he talks about his experience in using sports books and really any reading material about sports to promote reading among boys and girls. To start off, though, Jeff explains how stark the differences are between boys and girls' literacy and what factors contribute to that reading gap. When Michael and I, Michael Smith and I, initially were planning our research on boys and literacy, you know, we looked at data from 42 different countries, which was every country where the data was available. And boys were underachieving girls to a statistically significant degree in every kind of reading, every kind of writing, speaking, listening, just across the board. And the only exception was in the case of workplace literacy, where boys achieved about the same level as girls in 16 countries. So we think our data explained that because we found that boys privilege an immediate functional value for their literacy and anything they're learning. And of course, workplace literacy would, would provide an immediate situation, context of use, functionality. Uh, we also found that explanatory of why boys often uh, privilege and uh, prefer nonfiction books, because nonfiction books are obviously more related to the real world and, and functionality. However, we, we also found in our follow-up studies that literature could have those same qualities if it was taught in an inquiry environment. Now, the recent data that we've seen uh, that's coming out is that the situation in the United States and internationally is not improving, that boys still underachieve girls to a statistically significant degree in pretty much every area of literacy. So it's been 12 years since we did our original uh, data collection for reading Don't Fix No Chevys, and the situation has not improved in any way. So following with this idea that, that boys will be drawn to read uh, books about sports because they like sports, what influence does, does the content of a book have on a boy's willingness to pick it up? In other words, will a, will a boy who likes hockey be inclined to read if, if he has access to a hockey book? One thing we found was that, which obviously is not new to our study, but you know, boys, like anybody, uh, learn by proceeding from the known to the new. So they, they like to read things they already know something about because the zone of proximal development of that text is going to be closer to home. It's going to be more accessible to them. Another thing is that people use reading as a way to identify. So boys often want to identify as somebody who's interested in sports, knowledgeable about sports, interested in outdoor pursuits, uh, reads about outdoor pursuits. 
Also, very important in our study was what we called exportability, which by which we meant that you could talk about what you read, that other people would be interested in it, and you'd be interested in sharing it. So texts that were exportable were, were of high value. And of course, sports are very bounded, and you have a winner and a loser, and usually the things are very exciting, and there's twists and turns on the way to victory or defeat. So those things tended to be very, very exportable. You know, on the other hand, I don't want to uh, overstate the case. I, I was teaching in Australia, and this kid who was kind of a reluctant reader was looking at a, uh, a set of books on the book cart, and I said, hey, here's some great books about surfing. And he goes, oh, well, okay. And they go, well, you don't sound excited. He goes, well, I was going to read the book about the girl with cancer. And I said, well, well, that's fantastic. You know, and I realized I had made a snap judgment based on his appearance and based on the culture I was in and based on the fact that he was a boy when, in fact, he was kind of tending toward this other book. And you've done research on that in terms of, of uh, how boys get led to books uh, so that, that the suggestion of a teacher in many times doesn't work, correct, as opposed to the suggestion of, of someone in their social circle? Well, one thing we found in this study, and I, I found it in other studies like you got to be the book, is that the kids value each other's opinion way more than the teachers. Uh, we also found the kids would learn things from each other that they wouldn't learn from the teacher. So the teacher might say, I want you to visualize and read and give the kids techniques for doing it. It was way more effective if you were sharing think-alouds and your buddy said, and I'm seeing this as I read, and then you go, oh, you know, I'm going to try to do that too. So we saw it over and over again where the kids would learn things from each other that they wouldn't from the teacher, including suggestions for text. And I think it really suggests that you want to have a lot of free reading in your classrooms. You want to provide a rich classroom library, make available a wide variety of text that address a wide variety of interests. I'm very big on providing a lot of informational text. I like to have magazines and periodicals. The books that my boys are attracted to the most right now are these books called The Ten, uh, which I was involved in editing uh, for Scholastic. And they're books like, who are the 10 greatest athletes of all time? Who are the, the 10 greatest female athletes of all time? Uh, what were the 10 greatest upsets, the 10 greatest comebacks? There's a whole series of sports books and the kids love it, and I've been able to engage them in writing extra chapters or arguments disagreeing or agreeing with the rankings. Uh, you know, sports lends itself to that kind of thing. Uh, the magazines the boys like the most are Sports Illustrated and ESPN, uh, the magazine. And I do also have uh, Sports Illustrated for Kids, which a lot of the middle schoolers really like too. So I think it's important to make these things available and to have this free reading agenda so the kids can learn how to choose books and, and choose reading materials and that they get a wide sense of what readers do and what reading materials are available. One of the things in our boys' study that really struck us was how a lot of the boys were readers in that they went to websites. Uh, one kid was always following the Virginia Tech uh, teams. He was a big fan. Uh, another kid was a big fan of the Orioles and the Ravens and was always following them online. And, and yet they, they professed not to be readers. Mm -hmm. 
And you go, well, wait a minute, you're reading these websites. You're, you're reading this every day. You're, you're following these teams. You, you've read this autobiography of Ray Lewis, you know. And the kids would go, nah. And the reason was because they weren't reading what was assigned in school. So school defined them as readers or non-readers. So if you've got more materials available and you make it clear as a teacher uh, that readers read all kinds of things and that readers read periodicals and informational texts and websites, then you're going to allow the kids to identify themselves as readers. Here's another thing that's just come up in a, in a study that I'm just completing, uh, which we originally called Let Them Read Trash, because it's about kids who read books their teachers and parents disapprove of. And I think the title's actually going to become Unrestricted Reading. But one of the things we found was that, you know, if even if a kid read every book that was assigned in school, it didn't make him a reader, because readers read all the time. And they read all kinds of text, and they and they know how to choose their own reading, and they know how to run their own reading lives. So if we don't have free reading agendas and help kids to make choices and show them the variety of choice and allow them to make their own choices and identify themselves as readers, they're never going to have a reading life. And I would say that's got to be the goal of schools, that you're teaching kids for life. And you want them to be enriched by their reading throughout their lives. And you want them to be able to read things that they want to talk about with friends and to challenge them and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, it just seems more and more important to me that we provide that kind of choice and that variety of materials. Here's another thing that, that's coming up for me right now because I'm writing about some friendship units that my teachers have engaged with through my Boise State Writing Project. And a lot of the teachers were using all kinds of sports stories to illustrate uh, the stuff about friendship, uh, including Tangerine by Edward Bloor, uh, but also a lot of things about, you know, real-life events, because, you know, what they're talking about is what makes a good teammate, what makes a good friend, uh, you know, when do you have to call your friend on something, when do you indulge your friend, I mean, and and sports is filled with those kind of dilemmas, and of course, it was a great thing for the boys. The another thing was that oh, girls are really engaged by sports now too, and like to identify themselves as athletes. And another thing that happened in these classrooms was so one of the girls said, "Hey, we'll read this one of yours, but then you got to read one of ours." <laughs> and so you know, and so the kids were reading things they might not necessarily have picked up on their own, but it was kind of there was a, a quid pro quo thing going on. Mm-hmm. So I think that's important that there was that capacity for kids to choose books, but also suggest stories and things they have found that they wanted everybody to read. So you just get more variety, and, and people get to identify themselves as readers in different ways. As we heard from Jeff Wilhelm, sports-related books and magazines can work in drawing boys to become readers. The authors of children's books offer further testimony to the fact that some boys who are reluctant readers are drawn to read about their favorite sports. These authors spend a lot of time in schools talking to the kids who read their books. They hear from teachers and parents and even the children themselves who tell them that their books have sparked a new interest in reading. And in some instances, the authors know from their own experience that reading stories about their favorite teams and players in the sports pages or magazines 
can lead to a life of reading. This was the case with my next guest. Tom Palmer is an English author who has published 19 books for children, mostly related to football. Tom is involved in a number of programs related to children's literacy, and he produces a range of educational materials to accompany his books. Tom's work as a literacy advocate comes out of his own experience as a reluctant reader. As he explains in the interview, it was Tom's mother who used his love of soccer, particularly his favorite club, Leeds United, to coax him into becoming a lover of reading. I just, I wasn't interested in reading at all. Like, I mean, like many boys, it's not terribly unusual. And um, I, I was struggling at school and she knew that she had to get me reading for pleasure, really, which is an important way of getting children into reading, as, as you know. And so um, she got me reading match reports about, about Leeds United and um, then she got me magazines. Um, but she she built me up so that I wasn't reading books, which intimidated me. And I would had I always had the sense I would never finish a book. Um, so she got me reading shorter things, articles in newspapers and magazines, and gradually built me onto books about football, fact books um, that were easy to read in small chunks. And gradually, my confidence as a reader built up from there. I read in one interview that uh, you didn't read a complete book until you were 17 years old. Correct. Yeah, correct. And of of my own volition, I suppose I, w- I would have read schools, books I had to read at school, um, but to read for my own pleasure or by my own choice, certainly not not until the age of seventeen. No. So you would be you would be proof that uh, reading about sports, having having sport related uh, magazines and books, can actually get uh, get a boy to enjoy reading. Absolutely, yes. And I think it's a technique that's used a lot, um, it's, well, certainly in the UK anyway at the moment, that sport is used and the, the high interest in sport. I mean, there are a few barriers to that. There are, there are people in the, in the, in the world of, of reading who, who don't see reading about sport as real reading. I know in, I know in, in the States there's a sports writing is taken a lot more seriously, whereas in this country, certainly writing about soccer it's not considered proper reading and writing. Perhaps reading about rugby and cricket is, but in, in, in the UK, it's, it's a lot of people look down on it, which is a barrier to boys who need to be bolstered to make feel like they are readers. So, Tom, I know that you do a, a lot of work in terms of, in addition to your writing, in terms of promoting uh, literacy uh, for children, particularly among boys. I know that you do a lot of work with the National Literary Trust. And uh, one of the projects you've been involved in is the Premier League Reading Stars. So can you talk about that program and your in- involvement with it? Yes, and the Premier League Reading Stars is a scheme that uses the power of the the, the football or soccer um, Premier League to encourage children to read, and boys in particular. And it, it, it targets children who like football but aren't that interested in reading and encourage, encourages them through through footballers. Um, footballers, each Premier League football club, and there's 20 of those, each of those clubs put forward a player who recommends books and does videos about enjoying reading. And then there's a scheme of 10 sort of classroom plans for one-hour sessions in the classroom to use those footballers 
to encourage children to read, and it, it's hugely successful. And I've, I've I've been involved in it. I've I've been one of the authors involved in helping promote it, but I also write the the um, the classroom plans as well with a, a teacher who's a friend of mine. So um, I'm I'm very I've been involved for for ten years now, and it's a it's a it's a really good thing because there there are a lot of children who are, are reluctant about reading, but football is such a massive um, popular thing in the UK at the moment. And given that uh, you are a, a football fan, what is it like for you to have uh, professional footballers reading your books? It's wonderful. <laughs> it's quite it's quite surreal, really, seeing um, a, a major football recommending my footballer recommending my book or reading from it. Um, re- I've recently written a rugby book, which several rugby players have been reading aloud at literacy events, and it's lovely. It's really lovely, and and. It's lovely to see. I, I really enjoy seeing sports people who often have a bad reputation in the media sitting down on the floor with a group of children and reading to them. It's, it's a wonderful thing, and it, it has a massive impact on those children that to see, just to see a footballer or a rugby player reading something, it, it makes them see reading in a whole new light. And I know it, it seems so simple and, and obvious, but it, it really works. It's, it's wonderful. Tom, you write about a variety of issues in your in your books. Uh, one of your books features a boy with dyslexia. Another features a boy whose father was in prison. Uh, just this past year, you published a book dealing with the issue of trafficking. Uh, the book features a, a 16-year-old boy uh, who is trafficked to England from Africa with the promise of going to England to play football. So I want to ask about what leads you to turn stories about young footballers toward these other issues. Where do you, uh, where do you get these ideas to, to move in these other directions? I suppose foot, football on its own is interesting, but not extremely interesting for fiction. But bringing something else into it helps in, enhance it, I suppose. Um, and particularly, I, I, read, I, I read a lot about football in, still in magazines. So I read a magazine called World Soccer, um, and that raises issues like the kidnap of players in Central America, and the trafficking of young footballers from Africa, and other other issues in football. And football is is badly corrupted in a lot of countries. And I wanted to to write stories where a boy, about a fourteen year old, fifteen year old boy, would would take on those who were trying to corrupt football because I love I love football and because I I hate the people who, who try to corrupt it. So I created this boy who would solve crimes and, and one of the crimes I, I read about repeatedly was young African footballers being ex- exploited and trafficked and it's it's a massive it's a massive problem. There are there are thousands of young men in France and Belgium who have left Africa um, thinking they were become gonna become a super rich megastar um, and they, they've been left with nothing. They've been cheated out of everything, and they end up involved in crime, prostitution, um, etc. In, in cities like Paris and Brussels, and, and so I went to Ghana and I talked to people involved in in football and met some boys and developed a story from there. And I suppose it, it so it allows me, as well as writing stories to entertain people, it allows me to go on about the things that disturb me that I want to stop. And you're right about getting this idea from reading uh, the magazine World Soccer. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the magazine the magazine World Soccer has probably given me three or four of my 
my novel ideas. And I, wanna, I wanted to ask about that. Are you able yeah. now to uh, to read world soccer as, as a fan, or are you always on the look for, for something new to write about? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I, I, re- I read the magazines as a fan, definitely. I read them for entertainment and understanding. But um, when something leaps out, it's immediately... Um, gets put out and put in a scrapbook or, or inside a notebook and becomes part of a, a small file that I, I start to generate a story from. I do it all the time, cutting little pieces out of magazines and newspapers that two years down the line will be a book on a shelf, I suppose. And do I recall from an interview that you uh, describe in one of your books or you draw from the experience of being, being chased after a match by... Uh supporters of the other side was it an everton match that you were at it was yes was yeah. yes i am um, yeah in in my books if, if there's a chase scene i i often remember I, it was um it was probably about 25 30 years ago but some everton supporters chased me and my friends through Leeds city center and i remember that very clearly and i i draw on those um the memories and the breathlessness and the, the panic. And you, you, if you, I suppose while you're writing, if you if you try and put yourself in a in a situation you've been in and then exaggerate it, it um, it helps you write a bit better. That's the plan anyway. I want to ask how it's been to make the transition from writing about uh, football to writing about rugby and cricket for you. The the only difference is, I suppose I know I sort of have a deep knowledge of football and have done for years, but rugby. Although I know a little about it, I, there are a lot of people who know a lot more. So, um, first of all, I do a lot of research. And secondly, I show it to people who do know more about rugby than me, who point out where I've made a really stupid mistake. And so I, but, yes, I, I, I depend on um, a bit more research when I'm writing about other sports, definitely. And following on that comment about people uh, telling you to to take out something that you get egregiously wrong, uh, from what I know from from interviews you've had, you really uh, make writing a, a a team activity. This is something you acknowledge openly. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and and it, and it starts at home where I, I discuss the ideas about what I'm going to write with with my wife and now my daughter who's nine now um, and I when I've written things I show them to to both of them and my wife is almost a co-author really in the way that she she helps me put the weaknesses and helps me come up with better ideas and then I I go into classrooms and I read stuff out to children and immediately realize what works and what doesn't work from their reactions and then I'm in a writing group as well and we critique each other's stuff and if I write a new book, I'll send it out to six or seven of my readers who I email um, occasionally, and they they tell me um, what they think of it. And the, the more the more honest feedback I get, the better. Really, I've tried to find people who who'll tell me when something doesn't work. And Tom, you also acknowledge on your website and in interviews the uh, the contributions or the influences of other writers. Uh, on your writing, and, yeah. uh, and I want to ask you about that. Do you have any suggestions of looking ahead with summer holidays? Do you have suggestions of of other writers uh, of sports books for for young readers that you'd recommend? Yes, I would most definitely. And um, there's, uh, the, I think the, the 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 best football writer, certainly for old, older children anyway, is an author called Mal Pete, and he's written books like Keeper and penalty and exposure about 
um, football, but it includes um, magic and, and and the supernatural as well. And they're they're, they're superb um, books. Keeper in particular. Um, then there's other writers. There's a really good rugby series called The Rugby Zombies in in Wales, which is um, by Dan Anthony, and that's um, three really good books about three boys who find a group of zombies in the woods wearing rugby tops, and the story begins there. Um, Lauren St. John has written a couple of books now about a young girl from a very poor area who gets involved in equestrian um, pursuits, and that's a really good sports series. The books that Tom mentioned by author Lauren St. John are The One Dollar Horse and Race the Wind, both published by Orion Children's Books. There are three books in Dan Anthony's series, The Rugby Zombies, published between 2010 and 2012 by Pont Books. Malpete's acclaimed series of football novels for young adults are titled Keeper, The Penalty, and Exposure. All three are published by Walker Books. And Tom Palmer's newest book, out just this summer, is titled Ghost Stadium. It's published by Barrington Stoke. You can find more about Tom and his books at his site, tompalmer.co.uk. Like Tom, American writer Dan Gutman sees his work not simply to write and sell books, but to encourage kids to read by providing them with stories that they'll want to read. In 20 years as an author of children's books, Dan has published more than 100 titles. And I can attest that his books are well-loved by kids, at least by the kids in my house. Among Dan's most popular sports books are his baseball card adventure series. In these 11 books, a boy is able to travel back in time by magically touching a baseball card to meet the great player who's pictured on the card. To start our interview, I asked Dan which moment of baseball history would he want to see if he had his character's ability to time travel at the touch of a baseball card. If I could go back to any moment in history, I would go back to uh, October of 1932, um, Wrigley Field, and that was the World Series between the Cubs and the Yankees. And I would go back to see with my own eyes whether or not Babe Ruth really called his famous cold shot home run. Because it's, it's really the, the biggest mystery in all of sports. Did Ruth really point to center field? Or was he just you know pointing at the pitcher and, and drawing back and forth with the pitcher? Nobody knows for sure. They were, even the people who were there at the time gave conflicting answers to that question. So... That would be really cool to go back and, and just see it with my own eyes and definitively figure out the, the mystery. To solve the eternal mystery of baseball. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So when you were, uh, when you were a kid, uh, what kinds of sports-related materials did, did you read? Because there weren't, there weren't a lot of books like you write for kids back then. No, there weren't. Uh, and honestly, I, I wasn't a big reader at all when I was a kid. I, I thought reading was boring and hard to do. And uh, my mother would really worry about me. She used to buy me uh, mad magazines and comic books, hoping it would get me interested in reading. And it didn't really work. But there, there was one series that I do recall getting into. And 
The series still exists, actually. It's called Childhoods of Famous Americans. Uh, a lot of library, libraries have them, where they uh, basically, you know, um, they're, they're biographies of these famous people um, of their childhoods. So I used to read about, you know, Ruth and Gehrig and Jackie Robinson and Jim Thorpe and people like that. And I think there's like 100 books in this series now. And actually, I had the opportunity uh, a few years back to write a couple of them. Um, so I wrote uh, the, the Childhood of Famous Americans book about uh, Jackie Robinson and the one about Joe DiMaggio, too. But you won't see my name on them because I used a pen name, okay. actually. Okay. And you did write a book about a, uh, a famous story from the childhood of Babe Ruth. Did that originally come from one of those books? That... Oh, you're talking about Babe Ruth and the ice cream? Yeah, man. yeah. Um, n no, it came out of, uh, while I was researching my book, Babe and Me, I, I read a whole bunch of books about Babe Ruth, and one of them, it was the only one, it said very briefly that when Ruth was a child, when he was like, I don't know, nine years old or something, he stole a dollar from his father's saloon, and he used it to buy ice cream for all the kids on the street. And I thought, wow, that sort of like really sums up Ruth's personality right there in one shot. He was a sort of a mischievous little boy who didn't really follow the rules, and yet he was also very generous at the same time as a person. So I thought it really summed up his personality, and so I wrote this book called Babe Ruth and the Ice Cream Mess, which is uh, an easy reader for you know kids in first and second grade. So since you mentioned the research that you do for your books, I want to ask about that, particularly with the uh, the baseball card adventure series. Um, yeah. What what it, does your research process look like for those books and for other books that you do? Primarily, I'd say it's uh, it's reading um, other books that people have written. There's some people, you know, like Ruth, Jackie Robinson, Satchel Paige, Roberto Clemente, that there have been lots of books written about them, uh, adult uh, biographies, and so I'll I'll get my hands on everything in sight about those players and I'll read them. And while I'm reading those books. I'll, uh, I use these three by five file cards, and I just jot down any anything that is of interest to me. You know, a, a piece of uh, description of the person, what he looks like, or or something that he said, or some trivial fact, and I'll write it down on my file card. And once I have like you know 100, 200 cards, I'll uh, sort of shuffle them around, change the order, see if I could take these ideas and sort of weave them into a story. That makes sense from start to finish. That's my outline for the story is, is on file cards. I used to do that on computer, by the way, but I found that on computer, once the outline got too long, it became difficult to cut and paste back and forth. Mm -hmm. So I found that the file cards uh, work a lot better for me. And besides the books, I will, you know, sometimes dig up old magazine articles. I'll go online, uh, uh, look at videos, if, if there are any that exist of that particular player. And I, I do a lot of research for those books because I really want them to be accurate and realistic, too, to really capture the personality of the player. And I recall reading in an interview that you said that uh, when you go out to school visits uh, mm -hmm. to talk to kids about, about your books, that those are also research visits, not so much historical research, but just about uh, how kids talk and, and what goes on in a, in a school. Oh, yeah. Uh, when my kids were little, I've got two kids myself, and, and my kids are a little bit older now. My son is 23 and my daughter is 17. So they're a little bit, you know, out of my age range. 
so I, I still visit schools about, you know, once a week I'll visit a school and spend a day there. And I have lunch with a group of kids and I, you know, talk with kids and sign their books and everything. And, you know, by, by seeing how they talk and the way they dress and what interests them, just chatting with them, it, it helps me, you know, keep in touch with my audience. And how else is a, a guy in his 50s going to, you know, relate to a bunch of 10-year-olds anyway, right? Yeah. And following on that, I want to ask this, you know, so, so you and I grew up reading box scores probably you know that was our link to baseball oh yeah you know whereas you know my sons who read your books they grow up playing xbox that's that's their link to baseball so how do you write to engage those readers you know the this current generation of young readers who are playing these you know real hyper real sports video games how do you make the description of a game engaging for those kids yeah it's funny that you would bring up box scores because I remember very clearly uh, when I was a kid, I'd go to the library and I'd dig up um, microfilm, you know, they mm-hmm, had the mm-hmm. reels of microfilm, and you could just say to the librarian, I want, you know, uh, July 24th, 1927, and she'd bring you the New York Times that day, and you'd reel it around the machine, and you could look at the box score, like, wow, wow you could see how the Yankees did that way that day, and oh, Ruth and Garrick went two for four, and Garrick hit a home run, and blah, 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 you know? Yeah. I found that really fascinating myself. As far as, uh, you know, captivating the reader, you know, or trying to compete against uh, Xbox and whatever, it's not easy. <laughs> but, uh, I don't know, I, I, um, I feel like uh, because I was a reluctant reader myself, I really know I really relate to those kids, and I really know what bores them and what turns them on. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, um, like, I know that kids like that, they don't like to read long, beautiful, descriptive sentences, for instance, and really long chapters. They don't want to read a description of what the weather is like, and they don't want to read a description of what people's faces look like or, or what a room looks like. They want you to get to the point, get to the action if there is any. And yet... You can't just write action. You know, if you just write action, it's kind of boring. So you have to sort of take the reader on a roller coaster ride, you know, bringing them up, bringing them down, um, telling them what happens in a way that hopefully they'll be so captivated that two hours later they look up from the book and feel like, wow, that didn't even feel like reading. That, that was so effortless. I felt like I was watching a movie in my head. That's what I try and accomplish in my books. Mm-hmm. So I'll ask you, Dan, uh, you have written uh, over 100 books, and many of them uh, focus on sports, uh, sports books uh, for young readers. And yeah. so I'll ask you, uh, for someone who's you know, looking forward to a, uh, a summer of reading, uh, what would be the, the books, you know, a few from your corpus of work that, that you would uh, recommend first to a young uh, reader? Well, uh, I mean, the main thing is uh, my baseball card adventure series. Uh, it's a series about this kid uh, who has the power to travel through time using a baseball card like a time machine. And he goes on various adventures with baseball players from the past, such as Hannes Wagner, Jackie Robinson, Babe Ruth, Shulis Joe Jackson, uh, Clemente, Ted Williams is the newest one. And it's not just that he goes back in time to you know shake hands with this guy or watch him do some amazing thing. He really, in every story, he has a mission that he has to accomplish. You know, like in Babe and Me, he wants to see if he could see Ruth's cold shot. In Shoeless Joe and Me, he wants to see if he can prevent the Black Sox scandal from taking place so that he will save Shoeless Joe Jackson's reputation. 
Um, in Roberto and Me, he tries to prevent Roberto Clemente from getting on the plane that's going to kill him. Mm-hmm. So he always has a mission to accomplish, and of course he always fails in his mission, but hopefully learns something in the process. So if you're into sports and if you're into history or time travel, uh, I think you know kids will really like this series. And I do another series. I don't know if you've seen these, Bruce, but uh, there's five books in this series. The first one is called The Million Dollar Shot. And I got the idea for this one because I wanted to write a basketball book for a long time. Mm-hmm. But basketball is hard to write about because the game moves so fast, you know, compared mm-hmm. to baseball, where everyone's standing around spitting and scratching themselves the whole time. Um, in basketball, they're running back and forth real fast. So I thought, how could I write a basketball book? And then I was watching a game on TV one night, and they had one of those contests where they pull a fan out of the crowd, and they let him take one shot for a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And I thought, that's a great idea for a basketball story. So I wrote The Million Dollar Shot. And then the publisher really liked it, and they said, how about a sequel? And I thought, well, I can't very well have the same kid take another shot. You know, mm-hmm. that would just be redundant. So I thought, what if I started from scratch with a completely new setting, completely new characters, and a different kid has the chance to do something to win a million dollars. So then I wrote The Million Dollar Kick, which was about soccer, and the main character was a girl in that one. Uh, Then I did The Million Dollar Goal, which was about hockey. Uh, The Million Dollar Putt, which was about golf. And in that one, it it was about a kid who's blind and takes up golf. And finally, The Million Dollar Strike, about one of my favorite sports, bowling. <laughs> so, and that, by the way, is the first bowling horror story ever written. <laughs> I take credit for that. So, uh, I think these five books, uh, uh, kids, and I would say in the uh, you know third, fourth, fifth, and sixth grades okay. uh, would really enjoy. For more about Dan and his books, including some rejection letters he received for his early manuscripts visit his website, dangutman.com. My name is Patrick Donnelly, and I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, a senior content editor for a company called Sports Data. You can learn more about what we do at sportsdatallc.com. When I was a kid, I was obviously a voracious reader, as it's become something that I've done through my whole life, and it's turned into a profession, being a reader and a writer. And one of the sports series that I remember reading, um, very fondly, or fond memories of reading as a kid, was the Sports Hero Biography Series. Uh, did a little research on them recently to find out a little bit more about them, and apparently they were published by Putnam and Sons, and the author of most of these series, most of the titles was a guy named Marshall Burchard, uh, but I can remember reading Sports Hero Rod Carew, Sports Hero Fran Tarkenton, and not just Minnesota athletes either. Terry Bradshaw, Roger Staubach, Billy Jean King, Franco Harris, Brooks Robinson, Larry Zonka. These are all people who, you know, mostly who I'd seen playing on TV but didn't really know too much about. And uh, I think the the biography series was a great way to sort of expand my horizons and get me thinking about people in other parts of the country, different countries, parts of the world, and to you know, kind of realize there's a, a big world out there and really uh, stoke my intellectual curiosity. The other, uh, the other couple of titles I wanted to talk about were by an author named Alfred Sloat, S-L-O-T-E. 
I believe he was an elementary school teacher or perhaps a, a college professor in Michigan. And his books were all set in Michigan. Um, the two that stand out the most to me, one was a book called Jake. It was the story of a young African-American boy who played third base on his little league team and had a rough home life and found a way to overcome against all odds, persevere and, and thrive as a young ball player. And just a fascinating story, well told. And the other one was uh, called Hang Tough, Paul Mather, which was about a young a boy as a pitcher who came down with, I believe it was leukemia. It might have been Hodgkin's disease, I forget which actually, but you know, was struck down with a type of cancer. And again, had to persevere, had to battle, had hurdles. And it, the books did with me more, more so because of, you know, they were great tales, well told, but I think they went beyond just the typical, oh, we've got a big game coming up here, and, you know, how's our hero going to help win the ball game? You know, it showed kids fighting through some real-life experiences, and, uh, again, that was really applicable in a lot of ways to my own life. So my name is Alexander Meiss. I am uh, 30 years old. I live in uh, Gera, Germany, and I am having a little blog about sports literature. The address would be quarantipu.wordpress.com. And the first book related to sports that I read as a young kid, seven years old, uh, was a training guide for goalkeepers. It was Zettmeyer's Super Torwart Training. I got that as, as a gift because I, when I started playing soccer myself, I started out as a goalkeeper. And the next books that I remember are those kind of books that always are released in the uh, aftermath of big sports events, in that case, uh, the World Championship 1990 or the uh, European Championship in 1992. Also in that time, I uh, used to read uh, a football magazine. It's called Kika. It's the leading football magazine in Germany. And, uh, yeah, I think when I was of the age of seven or eight at that time, I was more in, interested in the uh, – Big posters they had. They had the life-size posters of the big stars of the time, Matthäus, Klinsmann, and so on. So you had to buy the magazine every week, and you got another piece of that big poster. When I started reading biographies, that was sports biographies, that was at the age of, let's say, 12, 13, 14 at that time, uh, when I started with uh, a book from uh, Jorginho, Brazilian footballer, world champion in 1994, who had a good career in the German Bundesliga, and then uh, later there was uh, the book of Jürgen Klinsmann, or a book about Jürgen Klinsmann, uh, titled um, From World Champion to Superstar in 1996, it must, must have been, uh, when basketball had its big time in Germany, long before Dirk Nowitzki, when everybody was in love with Michael Jordan. They also translated the book, uh, the books of um, Dennis Rodman, so I read his first book at the time, and uh, so that's what I can recall about my first experiences with sports books or sports literature. My name is Siddhartha Vaidyanathan. I live in the U.S. I'm a freelancer. I write on sport and other events. I blog at SIDV, that's S-I-D-V-E-E, blogs.wordpress.com. I grew up in India, in uh, the southern part of India, Bangalore. 
in um, the late 80s and early 90s. So that gives you an idea of how old I am. And uh, I read uh, a lot of, of course, uh, cr in, uh, cricket is big in India. So I read a, read a lot of cricket on a daily basis uh, in the newspapers and magazines. But of course, those were the days before the internet, in India at least. So there wasn't... Um, most of the reading was books or newspapers or magazines. Uh, a lot of cricket, a lot of uh, books on cricket. There was uh, there's this uh, historian called Ramachandra Guha who has uh, written quite a few books on cricket. So his books had definitely uh, an influence on me. There were a lot of anthologies on cricket which I read, biographies. Um, in terms of um, other sports, there was this magazine called World Soccer which, uh, in fact, the strange thing is that there was a second-hand bookstore near my, um, uh, in our neighborhood in India, which used to store world soccer magazines from the 70s, which I was reading in the late 80s and 90s as if it was real time, which was really weird because, you know, you, you're saying, uh, you're reading an article that says, and last week this player did this, and it's actually like 20 years ago that he's done this. But yeah, that was sort of a time warp that I lived in. And in terms of books, well, yes, mostly cricket again. But one book which I read, which was more like a no which is more a novel rather than a cricket book, was this book set in Victorian England called Tom Brown's School Days. It was a raging sensation in the 1860s when it came out in England, and it's it's a, a novel about uh, set in a school in England, but and it talks a lot about Victorian class and society. But there is a lot of cricket in that. And I think it sort of embodies how cricket as a game evolved from this whole uh, class structure of Victorian England and how it, it was embodied pretty much what a gentleman should and should not do. So, yes, Tom Brown's School Days um, is a book that uh, had an effect on me. Most of the sports books we've discussed so far on this episode are aimed primarily at boys. But, of course girls also participate in sports. It is part of their daily lives, and so publishers and authors have come to realize that it makes sense to include sports and the relationship of teammates in stories aimed at girls. One new author who has featured sports as part of the life of her characters is Lil Chase. Drawing from her own experience, playing football with the boys in her London neighborhood, Lil has written about the pressure that girls face when their peers, and perhaps boys as well, expect them to give up their interest in sports. Her book is titled Boys for Beginners, and Lil explains the story for us. Um, so Boys for Beginners is about a tomboy called Gwynny. Uh, she uh, has grown up with her dad and her older brother, who were kind of football nuts. And so she herself is also a football nut. And um, she, her best friend's Paul, and they hang out a lot. And then one day, a, a super hunky new guy comes to the school called Charlie Knotts. And as soon as Gwynny sees him, she totally falls for him, and she wants to 
to go out with him. Um, but uh, eventually she starts to think that there's no way she can do this unless she becomes a really girly girl. So she tries to join the BB club, which is this club of, of girly girls. And you have to have your belly button pierced to be in it. It's called the BB club because it's the belly button club. And she tries to become a girly girl um, to get his attention. And uh, basically she's very bad at it. And it's, and it's quite a funny story. And there's also a really nice dynamic going on with her dad. Her, her mum's dead. Um, and and he's he's trying to sort of work out what it's what it is to um, to raise a a young girl, which he's he's not he's not finding very easy. But their relationship is very sweet. I think it it brings a real heart to the story. I think. And the character Gwynny is based somewhat on on your own experience growing up, right? Um, yes, uh, definitely, slightly. I mean, I, I was definitely closer to my brother than uh, my sister. I, I do have a sister, and I do have a mum as well. She, she's alive and well. But I, but I was a tomboy. My my brother was just nicer to me, really, when we were growing up. So we spent a lot of time going to the park, playing football with, with our friends. Um, and my best friend, Kate, she was even more of a tomboy than me. She She had one brother... Um, and she would never, I mean, she literally said, I'm never going to wear a skirt ever. She, I have these wonderful photographs of her where she's got, she's just wearing mismatched, miscolored socks, um, sometimes even miscolored shoes, crazy kind of scraggly hair. She never brushed dirty t-shirts and things. She was, she was your archetypal tomboy. And then one day, we were about 10 or 11, and I remember her saying that she she wanted us to dare her to wear a skirt to school the next day. And it was very clear that she wanted to wear a skirt to school the next day, but she was um, she was too nervous to do it, and so she had to, she had to be dared to do it. Um, and I remember thinking at the time that that would make a great idea for for a story. And and I actually started writing it. I was I was 11 years old, and I wrote this story called Gwynny Goes Girly, um, and that's that's genuinely its its origin. So very much based on on my life. So, and this is something that we've talked about on the on the podcast in the in the past. Our uh, uh, girls and women as sports fans, and how different of an experience that is from uh, boys and men who are fans. And so, do you remember that when when you and Kate were playing? football of how differently you were experiencing the game from from your male friends <laughs> yeah i mean i think and it's uh, uh women are often and, and, and we are totally making generalizations uh but they're often less competitive uh we were just doing it to join in with our older brothers that were playing they were going to the parks if if we wanted to go to the park too, we pretty much had to play football. So, but they were very much they wanted to win the game, and it was all about who who scored the most goals. We were just kind of having fun. Um, and then there was definitely a time uh, when we could get a bit older, and and the guys would say they didn't want us to play because they wanted to play rough they wanted to do sliding tackles they wanted to go in hard for the shots and they didn't want to sort of knock over a girl and send her flying um which i suppose in one way is quite sweet 
and in another way, um, you could you could take offence and sort of say, hey, you know, we we, we can take the knocks as well as anyone. Um, but I definitely I do remember us having this conversation of the guys saying they didn't want the girls to play. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, Lil, have you found that this story has uh, has resonated with readers? So, have you, as, as you've talked with girls. Uh, have, have they told you about their experiences of being the tomboy who's interested in sports and then feeling the pressure to, as you say, go girly? Is this something that your readers have talked to you about? Definitely, yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm really lucky. I, I get quite a lot of fan mail, and and I absolutely love hearing from my readers. I just, I, it feels like such a privilege. And um, there's a lot of things that resonate with them. I think. Often it's um, friendships changing, that, that they, whether it's actually them or one of their friends um, becoming different, and and they don't understand sort of, you know, why we used to be so close and we used to have so much in common, and suddenly we're not having having these friendships in common anymore, and um, sometimes it's because. Uh, the girl that contacted me is is a tomboy and now is enjoying that less and less, enjoying playing football and hanging out with the guys in that way less and less. And sometimes it's because they want to stay a tomboy and they want to, to hang out with the guys and be silly. And it's their friends who are changing, acting differently. And they're, they're finding it hard to fit in with that and, and finding the change difficult. And I think it is a really difficult time. I mean, I think it's hard to find a balance. You know, even adults like to put everybody in a pigeonhole, um, like to know who they're dealing with. So it's hard to imagine a girl who's really good at soccer, who's really sporty, who then sort of goes out at night and looks fantastic in makeup and um, dresses. People find that, I think, um, even now, a bit of a, a bit of a hard thing to get their head around. Lil Chase's book, Boys for Beginners, was published by Quirkus Books in 2011. You can find out more about her writing at lilchase.com. A few of the guests on this episode have been involved not only in encouraging young people to read about sports, but also getting them to write about sports. Since 2007, the Footy Almanac has been a popular online and print outlet for fans of Australian rules football to offer their perspectives on the season's matches. The site features fans trying their hand at writing and writers who are fans. And for the last two years, the Almanac has also included the work of young writers. The Junior Almanac features the regular contributions of teenage fans of the sport who write reports on the matches they watch as well as more thoughtful articles about their experiences as young athletes and fans. I spoke to Philip Dimitriadis, a scholar of Australian football literature, a teacher of writing, and the editor of the Junior Almanac about this rare place in the world of sports media, a place where kids are giving the opportunity to express their perspectives on the games. To begin, I asked Phil about his experiences as a young fan in Australia and the sports books that he read as a kid. 
Funnily enough, Bruce, there wasn't a lot of literature around in the 70s for children mm. other than than basic sort of how to do it manuals and things like that. Most of the the stuff I read were football books, and one was called Football the Australian Way by John Craven. It was the first, I guess, book that I was given from my older brother as a seven, eight-year-old, and it was published in 1972. And it's a story of, of Australian football, and it's got sections by, by players about how they got into the game and the training they do and the values they they kind of project as well and you know like train hard say your prayers eat your vitamins and, and that sort of <laughs> mythology and you might become a champion footballer so it was that sort of stuff and uh, that I grew up with and um, and also funnily enough in in Australia in the 70s particularly in Melbourne I was reading a lot of wrestling magazines because oh, wrestling was huge, professional wrestling. So, you know, like you'd get magazines like Pro Wrestling Illustrated and, uh, you know, in, in the 70s, the Greek and Italian migrants who first came out here in the 50s and 60s loved the wrestling. Because yeah. so, I grew up in a Greek family as well who were massive wrestling fans and still followed footy, but wrestling was probably the first sport that they played and later on cricket so it was mainly sort of I guess player profile type books things like that so I know that you uh, Phil have been working on a collection of essays on football literature in Australia and uh, so do you see as, as you look at football literature has there been a development in, in since the 70s in, in books for younger readers uh, in terms of a larger body of footy writing Absolutely, there there has been uh, a lot, particularly since since the late nineteen eighties of uh, particularly novels about uh, or pitched at young adult readers and also adolescent readers about say a footy player who comes from a family uh, that might have problems and they might find their outlet in football and their coaches and their friends and all that. So it's been a growing literature. There's a couple you know, called the Specky McGee series, which is written by Gary Lyon, who used to be a footballer who played for the Melbourne Football Club and is also one of the, the major commentators on television now. And that series seems to be fairly uh, popular with young readers. And it's targeted to around the 10 to 14 year old audience. So they have grown a fair bit, but when I was growing up, those sort of uh, stories were just weren't available. I don't know whether people thought that there was a mar enough market in it, but it was mainly former players that would write stories and often historical uh, kind of stories with a backdrop of, you know, looking at the game in a historical context, whereas fiction in terms of um, adolescent sports market has started to grow quite a bit now. And I was going to ask, so are there any any standout works that, uh, so a place for, for kids reading about football, uh, someplace that they would start? Yeah, I think one of my favorite books is, is called Tiger Tiger by a guy called Michael Hyde. And he writes about uh, you know a young a young guy's search for his own for his identity playing football and his self reflection and what it does for his family and how it connects to his deceased father and his family. It's it's one of the best 
books in that genre. Uh, like I said, the Specky McGee series is is pretty good as well. And there's a few that that aren't part of a like particular line or, or series of books, but those two sort of stand out the most at the moment. Phil, I want to ask about your work with the Footy Almanac, and uh, we were talking a bit beforehand, uh, before the interview, about uh, what a unique site and really community uh, the Footy Almanac is for uh, sports fans in Australia. And, and something you do with the Footy Almanac is to edit the Junior Almanac, which is which is found at the site. So I want to ask about that. Uh, what is, what is the Junior Almanac, and how does it fit in with this larger community of of writers? Yeah, well, the Junior Almanac was uh, an idea that the creator of the site, John Harms, came up with, and uh, he he asked me to get involved uh, virtually about this time last year to get the young writers, because we had like a handful of teenage writers who had actually written for the book that comes out every year, and they'd done a few match reports, so we got together and thought it would be a good idea to have an offshoot on the site where the younger readers... Can, uh, can write about their relationship with football or with whatever other sport that they might be interested in or even just other topics. There's a few memoirs in there as well. But the pieces that, that are there shows that, you know, that there's some, some great writing and some wonderful reflections there on what sport means to them and, you know, what it means to probably the history in a family environment, also in a school environment. Uh, symbolically, and uh, so it's a it's a burgeoning sort of market and community that we're trying to work on on developing even more. So, knowing that you also you teach writing, uh, I want to ask: Why do you think this is valuable for for young writers? So, for instance, your your daughter has written for the site. Why do you encourage uh, your daughter uh, to contribute to the almanac? Uh, what what value do you see in young people? writing about sport as opposed to just playing or watching sport? I think just that element of self-expression and reflecting on why they play, what it means to them. Sometimes when, when writing about it, you can you can sort of find things that you weren't aware of maybe by just playing or just reading someone else's work. So when you're writing about it, you're engaging in that, that sort of window of, of relationship that's a lot more acute and much more... I don't know, uh, I guess you could say tangible than what it would be just to read or reflect on someone else's work when you're actually reflecting on your own relationship. And, uh, you know, the the ability and the fun you can have with words as well. Uh, and this is the great thing about sport. The language is often so emotive that, uh, you know, uh, compared to the rest of life where we, you know, the language we often use has to be fairly dry and functional. Sport gives us that outlet where we can be playful, we can be emotional, we can be critical. And I think that's a great thing for young people to be able to engage with. Let's turn quickly from the editor of the Junior Almanac to one of its writers. A regular contributor to the site who writes with impressive maturity and insight, is a 16-year-old footy fan named Hannah Kuhar. I caught up to Hannah during her busy schedule to ask about her writing work now and her plans for writing about sport in the future. To start, I asked her a question that I've posed to a number of guests on this podcast. What led her to become a sports fan? 
as an Australian kid, I think it's just embedded into my brain as soon as I'm born that sport is just an integral part of life. I mean, I've I've grown up in a pretty footy crazy family, so AFL has always been really important to me. And I guess even some of my earliest memories of sport were just um, going to my mum's netball games when I was just really little and it used to be so exciting staying past my bedtime to go and watch her have a bit of a laugh with her mates and then now it's funny because I'm the one who's playing netball having a laugh with my mates so I suppose sport it just comes from your family and it's just yeah ingrained in me and so is everyone in your family a Hawthorne supporter then <laughs> no actually just my mum's side's all Hawthorne and my dad who convinced my brother he they go for Carlton but um, we've tried to convince my brother for years now to go for Hawthorne, and I think it's slowly getting through. We might have a little bit of a chance to nab him. Okay. So something I've learned when I've started interviewing sports writers is that a surprising number of people who write about sport uh, were not athletes themselves, even at, at even at the youth level. And so I'll ask you, how does your experience... Uh, as an athlete and being from a family of athletes, how does that shape your perspective when you write about sport? I guess it's more of a, I suppose, an extension of myself. It comes really easily to me, the vocabulary you use. So those um, writers who haven't got that background, I think they bring a whole nother level. It's a, it's a different um, perspective, which I think is really interesting as a reader, um, because they see the game in a different... We might look at it really... We might be really analytical because we know so much about the game, but they look at it from a different perspective. So I guess as a reader, it's really interesting and it's for different situations. Sometimes I want someone who has a full understanding of the game and they know the nitty-gritty. Sometimes I just want to see it as someone else would see it. But as a writer, um, I find... Yeah, it's just through experience. It just comes really easily. Yeah, it's not not hard for me to write. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So then I'll turn the question around and ask, uh, now that you've been writing about football, how has that changed the way that you watch footy as a fan? (laughs) I think, well, because I'm only 16, I've just in the past few years, I've started to put these journalist goggles on. And so mm-hmm. now I find I'm going into life thinking, oh, that's really interesting. I bet I should write an article about that. People need to know about these things. Or I might be watching games and thinking, oh, wow, you know, this will be really interesting with these statistics. And I find my head, I'm starting to formulate these articles. I'm thinking, what's going on with me? What am I doing? <laughs> so, yeah, I suppose it just makes me more willing to if I see it because you've got to as a journalist you've got to decide am I going to dive into this article or will I just let it wash over me and so now I suppose that turning point that occurs um a lot more now and I'll as soon as I watch a game I want to write something down really quickly so I can get it in by deadline even though you know this is all, I guess, practice for the real world if I do become a journalist. Yeah, yeah. So you're always on the lookout for, for stories. Has uh, oh, have, having, having the uh, the journalist goggles, as you say, has it um, uh, changed the way that, that you view your team? Have you become, uh, you know, we think of journalists as being more objective. Are, are, when, you, when you watch the Hawks on TV, are you more objective when you watch the game? 
I tried to, because I'm I was so wary when I started thinking maybe sports journalism for me. I thought I really don't want to start bringing you know mixing business with pleasure with this. So I tried to stay away from looking at the Hawthorne games from a journalistic perspective. Although sometimes, not so much um, watching the games, but with all the um, drama that happens behind the scenes or an interesting story about, you know, one of the players or something. Sometimes that'll occur to me and then I'll just think, no, I can't do this. I don't want to talk about them. I'd, I'd prefer to uh, judge the other teams and leave my team to just, you know, weekend pleasures. So Hannah, it's clear from your articles that you are a well-read uh, fan and writer. Do you have any any books or writers that, that you particularly appreciate or maybe even try to emulate as a young football writer? Well, I've found um, that there was a book, The Meaning of Sport, by Simon Barnes, I think it was, mm-hmm. um, an English um, sports journalist. And I found after reading that, that really helped me develop the mindset of, okay, I'm not a student anymore. I'm going to act as though I'm a real journalist. And as soon as I watch the game, you know, he's got to send off his articles within half an hour. Imagine that pressure. I'm going to do that same thing for me. So he really helped create the lifestyle of a sports journalist in my eyes. Um, but as a reader, I there's <laughs> there's this um, Australian series about this boy called Specky McGee. He's just the same age as me, actually, just a fictional character and. He's going about high school, playing his footy, and I have to say, <laughs> as dorky as it probably is, that it's my favourite series of all time, just because it's so real, and he could be my friend, and he's just living such a spectacular life, and oh, so yeah, it, it's um, that's my personal enjoyment book, and then The Meaning of Sport, that's a good one for a journalist to read. And Hannah, you do write about other subjects. You've you've contributed uh, to the site The Underage, which is the student-run yeah. publication that's connected with the Age newspaper in, in Melbourne. And and you've done book reviews. You've done interviews. So so I'll ask, considering the variety of writing that you've you've done, uh, what do you particularly enjoy about writing about sport? I guess it's sports one of my passions. So I've got it's good having the background knowledge. Whereas if I was doing, say, a music interview, there's so many um, things you would need to research behind that. Whilst a sports team, I find that might, you do, I guess you do less research, but because it's really instinctive with me, so I guess that's easy. I also like how every game, every little scenario, it they're all different. You might just see a game and think, oh, yeah, the score was this, that pretty standard but every game has their own twists and turns and that's where the story comes out of it so I guess I like how you can have the same maybe the same structure you go into the game knowing the same things but then you come out of it thinking wow the characters in that and then the plot line every game is different yet they all have such a you don't have to go into every game with a completely new style and so I'll ask as a uh, a young sports writer, you've said already you have an interest in becoming a, a sports journalist. Is there uh, an athlete or two that that you think it would it would be wonderful to interview that that person? Oh my goodness! Well, I think Lane Beachley. She's a, a 
Aussie surfer and she's had a really interesting life. I find she's she's a very good surfer, but her success comes down to her mind, her mindset, I find. And so I think it'd be really interesting to tap into just how um, how she, how success and um, losing, I guess, it's just in, in that mind. And I, yeah, I'd really like to speak to her and see how she thinks. And also, I guess Ben Cousins, I mean, everyone loves, he's a bit of a pin-up boy around here. He's a bit of a mischief maker. And um, I, maybe if I was older, I would think that some of the things he's done in his life silly but I think he's all adventure and danger and I guess I'm attracted to that so I'd love to speak to him as well and is there an event what would be your your dream sporting event to cover Mm, I think the Australian Open would be a really interesting Mm -hmm. one just because you know, I've always grown up with it just being in my backyard. But mm-hmm. then you have all these spectacular names from all around the world coming to Little Melbourne to play this really massive event. So I think that would be a really fun one. That would be really fun. The book that Hannah Kuhar mentioned as particularly influential to her perspective as a sports writer is The Meaning of Sport, written by Simon Barnes and published in 2006 by Short Books. The Specky McGee series that both Hannah and Phil recommended is widely popular in Australia. There are eight books in the series, published since 2002, written by former player Gary Lyon and author Felice Arena. And Phil also mentioned the young adult novel Tiger Tiger, written by Michael Hyde and published by The Vulgar Press. My sincere thanks to Hannah for taking the time to appear on the podcast. Due to the time difference to Melbourne, she had to do the interview during her school lunchtime. So thanks to her for giving up time with her friends in the lunchroom to talk to us about writing and sport. And thanks to all my guests for taking part in this special episode of New Books and Sports. If you enjoyed what you heard, please friend us at Facebook. You can find us at facebook.com slash new books and sports. And we are also on Twitter at new books sports. You can offer your feedback and find daily links to thoughtful stories by sports writers from around the world. Later in the summer, we'll round up another team of experts for a special episode on sports memoirs. In the meantime, you'll hear upcoming interviews with the authors of recent books on cricket in India soccer in England and Africa, mountaineering in the Alps and Himalayas, and even Australian rules football. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening and enjoy your week.